Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, Mining Community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today is our 350th episode, and I have a very uh, special guest. Benedict Sobaka is the CEO of Eurasian Resources Group, uh, ERG, one of the world's leading and most diversified companies in the mining and processing natural resources space, with fully integrated energy, transportation and marketing operations. The group is represented in 16 countries uh, around the world in four continents and is one of the largest employees in our mining industry. Benedict has an extensive experience in the mining and energy sectors, holding various management and executive positions in some of the leading companies in the world. Um, He's co-chair of the Global Battery Alliance, where ERG is a founding member and has developed close partnership with the World Economic Forum, taking an active role in many industry groups and wider initiatives. I'm delighted to have Benedict on the podcast to give us an overview of ERG and talk about some of the important issues and topics in our industry and how ERG uh, deals with some of these challenges like ESG and some of the uh, green energy transition. Um, So that's welcome Benedict to the podcast. How are you doing Benedict? Very well. Thanks for having me, Rob. No, and I appreciate your time. As I mentioned, you are our 350th guest. Um, and we, for those that don't know you, and I'm, I'm sure many people in the mining industry do know you, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your your career, um, what you've done in the past um, before you got to uh, ERG, um, and obviously whilst, whilst you've been the CEO of ERG, some of the things that you've done during your during your tenure there. Very good. Well, thank you, Rob. Well, it's um, it's funny. I'm uh, this is your 350th podcast, and it's also my tenth year as the chief executive office of uh, Eurasian Resources Group. So we got two things to to celebrate. I I, I guess uh, I um, joined uh, ERG at the end of 2013, um, and uh, I at that time was the youngest CEO in the industry. So I've, I've probably made all the mistakes you can make, <laughs> which gives me great hope for the future. I would make less in the future. But uh, it's funny, uh, the um, when in 2013, um, people talked about mining, whether it was um, public's, uh, public society, civil society, the public sector, uh, host governments. It was um, it was a very different atmosphere. We're, the industry was really looked at as, <laughs> you might want to call it the, People from the dark side of the moon, right? People that dig the holes and right and produce metal in opaque places, um, and that has fundamentally changed. I mean, now as we are uh, at this, what I'd like to call this critical juncture in the world, the green energy transition, we are actually now considered part of the solution, if not the solution for the green energy transition. Um, because this accelerating transition to the green energy economy is driving huge demand for critical minerals, uh, which are in, at the same time facing pretty significant risks of supply shortages. 
Um, my background is originally in the oil and gas industry. I spent some time as a consultant there. Um, so I, I saw an industry that was much more established and much more visible than the mining industry 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but that has fundamentally changed. I think uh, you see that with where people want to apply in which part of industries, uh, what are exciting places to work in. I think the mining industry today is one of the most exciting places to work in with one of the brightest futures particularly given the demographics of our of workforces around the world um, and the importance of technology. One of the other areas I'm really excited about is technology. Uh, in general, I invest in startups. I have my own investment fund. Um, and um, this is one of the things I did before becoming a CEO. I, I started a number of companies and they were close to um, the raw material sector uh, services, analytic services. Um, started a company called MVS, which we sold to Platts uh, Dow Jones um, in 2011. Um, and technology has become increasingly important for the mining industry. Um, and it's not just the extractive industry, it's the resource efficiency. It's the use of, uh, of technology that's very much applied in other sectors, whether it's artificial intelligence, drone surveillance systems, um, uh, geo, uh, geospatial um, uh, reconnaissance uh, tools, um, electrical, optical, um, sorting technologies for mining extraction. There's a, a huge, there's a plethora of, of exciting technologies that we need to apply to the mining industry because uh, technology is going to be at the core of meeting the demand for the uh, energy transition, which some people assume will require an overall investment of around 1.7 trillion by 2050. So that's a 500% increase um, in uh, in the next few years. This has never been done before. Uh, the total mining sector spends something like 120 to $150 billion a year, depends on what you count as a mining investment. Um, that's about a month and a half of the oil industry. Right? So the industry is tiny for the challenge that it has on hand. Um, the energy transition is, I, I like to call it, the biggest purchase order in its history. We have to mine more minerals than have ever been mined in, in the history of the world. Um, in more complicated jurisdictions, higher risk jurisdictions, um, we have to build out regions that are um, have not had a history of mining in the past. Today, still 70, 80% of the world's exploration spend in mining goes into seven, eight, nine OECD countries. Right? Whereas the future mineral deposits that we need to find that are competitive um, that have a low supply uh, cost curve position, they will be in more complicated jurisdictions. Um, and we're not exploring in those regions. Um, most companies, at least, are not exploring in those regions, uh, which I think will be a fundamental challenge in achieving achieving the uh, the critical raw material supply for the energy transition. So our companies, we we are we are happy to work in more complicated frontier jurisdictions. We've shown that in the past. Uh, we're present in in the DRC, um, in Zimbabwe, in Brazil. Um, we've made forays into Guinea, uh, into Saudi Arabia. We're very significant in Kazakhstan and, and that surrounding region. Um, we believe that it's those kind of geographies that will deliver the next major projects. And, and I do understand when you speak to um, the policymakers in the United States of America and uh, um, and the European Union, as they would like to see more projects developed in their geographies, but ultimately comes down to the cost position because we don't want, um, as part of this build out of the critical raw material supply chain, you don't want greenflation, right? Because projects that are less competitive, they need a higher price to be competitive. Um, and a lot of projects that are in these safer jurisdictions, they just don't have the grade, they just don't have the uh, 
the um, um, the environmental ability to deliver uh, projects on time on schedule so that we cost to blow out some capex and so on so you need projects in um, frontier countries to deliver these materials uh, as you mentioned you've been with erg for, for 10 years now so congratulations on that how has the how has the company changed from when you started to where it is now um, well, we, we, we used to be uh, very much focused on, on, uh, on our original starting geography in Central Asia, uh, and we've uh, really built out our international portfolio. Um, we are now, we now uh, operate the world's largest single producer of cobalt in the world, and the DRC produce enough uh, cobalt today for roughly two and a half million electric vehicles. Um, and that's all been built out over the last few years. So it's as we've really made a push from a more regional player to a, a very global player. Uh, which also has more commodities to offer. Um, and I think that's what we're going to continue is, is be, companies in this space, they have to be global and they have to be large because the risks are significant for CapEx overruns. You need to have a portfolio and a portfolio approach also to investment. Um, that's why I think this energy transition, and I've been proven right already this year, um, this energy transition will lead to more M&A in the mining sector. Um, because the challenge is so large that uh, you need large companies that are able to take the risks and that will ultimately lead to more M&A because a bigger balance sheet and bigger companies can build and maintain bigger projects. Um, at the same time, what I think we're going to see as well in the industry and what we are also trying to develop more actively is um, in my time back in the oil industry, very rarely would a, a big oil project, oil gas project would be developed by one single company, right? You would see partnerships production sharing agreements, joint venture agreements, uh, development partnerships. Um, you don't see much of that in the mining industry. And I think that has to change as well um, because so many projects that are currently being being built are built by single companies. So that's what a single company risk for a single, single project risk in a single jurisdiction risk in many cases. So um, we need much more advanced and, and mature thinking about how, how the industry develops these projects in more complicated jurisdictions with higher risk around infrastructure, power supply, and so on. And that the, the ultimate route will be M&A um, and it will be partnerships on a project level. And that's something we at, at the ERG are doing very actively. Uh, we are working on a number of, of partnerships. Uh, recently, we signed a partnership in Saudi Arabia um, with the local company Ma'adan, uh, the local um, um, mining mining giant. It's those kind of partnerships that I think are, 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 are the way to success as we scale up production of critical raw materials in a way that is uh, ESG compliant and not just ESG compliant. I like to call it um, racing to the top as opposed to an industry racing to the bottom because that's what you get when, when people want a lot of minerals very quickly, as cheap as possible, you do get bad behavior in the supply chain. Right? People start to cut corners because there's a big incentive to do so. Um, and we should be racing to the top, right? Because that's the only way this industry can still be accepted 10 years from now if it doesn't have accidents if it doesn't violate human rights, and if it does have a sustainable path for its employees and its stakeholders to participate. And so we have to race to the top, and that only works if you do things with a long-term perspective in mind. And um, that's why transparency in supply chains in this energy transition is such a topic that I'm so passionate about, because this is our license to operate in the long term. We have to be more than just compliant in ESG. We have to be leading in ESG, because that's the only way for us to supply metals, critical raw materials that are central central to the energy transition in a sustainable fashion. 
What do what role do critical raw materials play in the uh, green energy transition? Well, look, it's um, <clears throat> most uh, many of your viewers will will probably have heard um, how just taking the 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 transition in the electric vehicle, the, in the transportation sector. Um, historically, um, a, a typical car uh, would require a certain amount of copper, a certain amount of steel. Um, that bill of material is fundamentally changing. Um, so today, for, for an electric vehicle, you need a lot of critical raw materials that tend to come historically from small, small niche markets uh, like lithium. I mean, lithium, nobody talked about lithium 10 years ago because it was used as a flux in the steel industry. Uh, or in the glassmaking industry, you, you didn't need lithium. Suddenly you need lithium. Cobalt was around for longer, but it was always more product for chemical industry, for maybe for aircraft turbines. Um, but but within a very short period of time, just the electric vehicle sector uh, became the single largest consumer of lithium and cobalt in the world, right? Out of nowhere. So we talked to people 10 years ago or 2016 when we, when we uh, jointly started the Global Battery Lines with the World Economic Forum, um, people would laugh at us and say, well, come back when there's actually a market for, for, for these raw materials. And, and within a very short period of time, um, you see penetration rates of electric vehicles um, that are in some, in some geographies, 30, 40, 50, 60%. So we even forecast, I mean, places like the US, we, we think by 2030, 50% of the new cars in, in the United States or in India for that matter, or in Japan will be electric. Um, and that will require an enormous amount of new materials because the green energy transition is much more energy intensive. So you have much more upfront investment into these materials, which have to be refined, produced, um, and, um, and, and transformed into, into battery materials and other materials that are required for the, for, uh, for uh, the transportation sector. And then they stay in those vehicles for a long time, which means they won't be recycled until very long. Your typical car will run for anything between 15 to 20 years. Only then will this material return into the supply chain. So you have to build over the next years. As these amounts increase, you have to build out a supply chain that can maintain supply into an industry that keeps accumulating uh, materials into itself. Right, And again, that has never been done before because the recycling rates were, uh, for example, aluminum and in copper, they were very high, but they went, they went into very different end segments. Um, and today, there still isn't a good a good technical solution for for recycling lithium, for example. So that's that's a real challenge, and uh, that's just the electric vehicle sector. Now, electric vehicle will drive investment in in charging infrastructure. Will drive more investment in renewable energy. Will drive more investment in in uh, the transportation distribution networks for electricity um, within cities and outside of cities. So this will trigger enormous investments, and they all require more materials. The good news is, is you will need a lot less of some other materials, which is the hydrocarbons. Uh, so today already, I think the electric vehicle sector has probably replaced just under a million barrels a day already. And with, that's with an overall EV penetration of something like between 7 and 12% on average around the world. So you, know, you increase that by, by a factor of 10 over the next 5 or 10 years. Uh, you're going to replace anything between 2 to 12 million barrels a day. That's the entire production of Russia. Right. So that's going to be a fundamental impact on the world oil industry. And the challenge there is, is that you will get imbalances on the oil sector uh, because you will need a lot less transportation fuels, but you'll still need the same amount of air aviation fuels. Right? You will still need the same amount of, uh, of feedstock for the petrochemical industry. But a barrel of oil, you can just cut and slice it one way. Right? There's a bit of 
bit of uh, wiggle room you do have, but refineries are designed to produce transportation fuels, of which a lot less will be needed in some of those key consuming markets like Europe and the United States. With the green energy transition, what are the business opportunities for the mining in industry in these scenarios? Yeah, the, the I, I as I mentioned, the, the this is the single biggest purchase order in history. Um, the challenge is really that that everyone can get very rich very quickly in this industry, um, the, but the challenge is some of the prices today do not reflect the prices needed for future supply. Right, so if you look at today's copper price, I think it's like eight thousand dollars a ton. Um, that's not enough to bring supply on the market in the next 10 years because the break-even points of many projects, including the capex, if you calculate some of those big infrastructure and, um, and uh, logistics-heavy projects, that price is not high enough to trigger those investments. Um, so in a way, you see a decoupling of the today's price with the signaling price that you need for sustainable development and investment, ESG-compliant development of major projects in the future. Um, so yeah on the one hand it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for the industry and uh, we, we as a company are well positioned with large areas for development with with massive areas for exploration uh, in the drc for example we hold four of the largest future um, future cobalt and copper producing companies uh, which are ready to be implemented so uh, the long lead type to develop these projects and 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 the fact that many of these untapped mineral deposits are in, in underdeveloped locations with higher risk profiles, that, that's a real challenge. So not just that the industry has was not going to make all this money, they have to find a way to deploy this capital. And the problem is that these long lead times often are driven by the same ESG requirements that in the first place triggered the demand for those minerals. Right. So if we if we want to uh, all drive electric vehicles, we'll have to build a lot of mines. In complicated jurisdictions, with, which will be very difficult to, to pull off for, for an industry that has a very bad track record of deploying large amounts of money. Quite the opposite. Look at the last couple of years, what happened in the mining sector is people did not build new projects. They returned money to the shareholders, right? So, which tells me is, is that the shareholders think they have better investment opportunities elsewhere, or the companies think that better return the money to the shareholders, do something for the share price, but don't work on spending money in the future, which is a real problem in, in general for mining companies is that mining CEOs, they typically have a, a short tenure. I think the average tenure in the mining industry is something like five years, which means anything you do today is completely irrelevant for the future <laughs> because you're not going to see the results. And that's a real problem because this institutional development of projects, you need 10, 15 years to see the benefits. So there's no incentive for, for an executive today to take a big risk, um, invest in future projects if the result will come 10 years or five years after he's uh, he's resigned or been resigned. So it's a structural problem in the industry that's too short-term when, in fact, the challenge is a long-term challenge and, and we need to develop uh, projects in complicated jurisdictions. And then you couple this with, with ESG requirement and risks of, um, of, um, of governance in some of those host countries that uh, will be required to host these mining companies. I think there's a there's a there's a real a real possibility this industry will fail in delivering these materials. Now, when you speak to policymakers, they say, "Well, what about recycling?" Hmm. Well, that's the problem. Right? The recycling amounts are going to be very very small because the supply chain itself is expanding so fast, and the material will be locked into the supply chain for quite some time. So it's not just a recyclability problem, but it's also a collection 
um, and recycling challenge um, of materials that will stay in the in a growing supply chain for a very long time. With obviously the increased uh, mineral demand, as as obviously you've uh, mentioned, um, where will mining companies find the resources to realise the green energy transition? You mean which uh, which geographies or which? Um... Yeah, it could be geographies, jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Um, what, yeah, what look, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Is this, if you asked me 10 years ago, what are the future metals? You would get one answer. If you asked me today, what are the future metals? We get a different answer. The problem is that I don't know what the future metals would be in many cases, because particularly around the battery segment, um, people don't know what the, the, the dominant battery chemistry is going to be 10 years from now. Is it going to be a lithium ion? Is it going to be a sodium ion? Suddenly you get a completely different chemical mix, right? Is it going to be solid state? you get a different battery chemistry mix. So it's very hard for us to, to predict which metal will be uh, will be interesting. Now, many people agree that probably um, metals like copper, they're kind of technology agnostic, right? Everyone will need copper, whether you, have, you use a lithium ion battery or a sodium ion battery. Uh, everyone will need copper, right? If there is renewable energy, whoever wins the renewable energy race, it's solar or, or, or wind, you will need copper for, for distribution and for the generator. So... Um, there's some commodities where everyone kind of agrees around uh, that they are the future commodities. Um, but then if you take those commodities and overlay that over over the earth, where you have uh, the opportunity to find these major deposits, uh, you run out of countries pretty quickly um, because you have to go into some of those very large uh, belts, such as in Saudi Arabia, um, the, um, the Nubian belt. Or you have to look into the area around uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, um, or you have to go into into Central, um, so Southern America, Bolivia, um, Chile, Peru. Um, th- those are not not geographies or the Copper Belt, right? For that matter, um, I mean, some of the next new big development areas will be in the south and in the east of the Congo, um, which today in many areas is not safe to operate. So, so you, you look at this list, and then you overlay this with where actually the investment is taking place, which is still in Australia and in Canada and in the United States and now increasingly Europe, Northern Europe and, and, and other areas, um, is the, the good projects are in predominantly in more complicated jurisdictions. So you need a different way to operate. Um, you need to need to make sure that you run one of the, the tightest and strictest um, corporate governance and anti-corruption um, um, framework within your company. Um, because again, you can't just because you operate in a more complicated country, you have to apply the same standards. That's incredibly important. That's the standards we hold ourselves um, uh, to as well. Um, but it will require a different type of mining mindset than your OECD type mindset, where you can basically solve any problem with money. And the problem is, is that engineers, when they develop projects, is you can basically solve any problem with money, right? You just spend more capex grows. If there's a return or not, that's a question. Um, but you can solve problems with money. So I don't like, if you can solve a problem with money, it's a business expense. It's not a problem. In many of those complicated jurisdictions, there are problems that you cannot solve with money, particularly related to infrastructure. Um, how to build a railway across multiple countries right, and borders. How to develop power infrastructure in Central Africa uh, across multiple jurisdictions with, with a plethora of complications. So this is where things get difficult. When you deploy capital in more complicated jurisdictions, there are many problems that you can only solve through multi-stakeholder initiatives, whether it's on power, it's on infrastructure, or on ESG itself. Because um, in, in the DRC is a good example. Is, is the 
um, in, in the copper belt, there's a major problem uh, with uh, with local communities, with artisanal mining, uh, with a lack of alternative employment, seasonal migrant workers. Um, that's a problem that you cannot just save, save with money. You need a multi-stakeholder initiative to address it across different mining companies with the local government, with the regional government, with the central government, uh, with the public uh, and civil society actors. Um, many, many, the, the, the future of, um, the, the future of business is really partnership in those complicated countries. Um, and I think um, this is an area where we've very early on tried to be at the front of those multi-stakeholder uh, organizations, such as the Global Battery Lines, um, which is an organization which has now grown into being, I think, the largest organization in the space. We've just done 150 members, companies, uh, uh, governments, um, civil society, uh, and customers. Uh, of, of battery materials to build a sustainable battery supply chain that's traceably clean. Um, and um, th that's the future. Uh, it is about partnerships. You mentioned um, changing the mindset within the mining industry. How, how can the industry change their mindset considering the mindset has been the same for, for long periods of time? Yeah, the um, if you look at your your typical um, mining company, um, it's it is not a diverse organization, right? There's a there's not a lot of women. There's not a lot of minorities. Um, people tend to be engineers from from an, an Anglo-Saxon mining background, um, and um, that clashes with the requirements and the challenges you will find in some some of the the future jurisdictions. Um, I think you we need as a as an industry be we tremendously more diverse. Um, we need to have a lot more local employment, also in senior mining and senior management positions. Um, and um, I think that's a that's a real challenge for the industry because again, if you want to have half of your your management team to be female, for example. You need you need to be pretty damn good on all levels below that to make sure you've got a feeding system into that top level of the company. Um, but I think most mining companies fail miserably in in uh, in having more than 10, 20, 30 percent of their workforce being female. And of course, some of that is driven by the fact that uh, the the jurisdictions, the locations, the the workplaces are not something that um, many women would find exciting because they may have other alternatives. Uh, but that's changing. I, I, at the outset, uh, Rob, I spoke about technology. Um, I think in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see a lot more jobs that are amenable for, for people who like to live, for example, in cities, which will draw more, more, um, uh, more younger people, more uh, tech type people, more women, more diversity, and because you don't have to go and work on site. Today, technically, it's already possible to operate a mine basically from anywhere in the world, right? As long as you have a good Wi-Fi connection at the mine, you can do that. Uh, so, so we need to, you need to need to combine technology uh, to and and our operations uh, to actually achieve more diversity. I think that's going to be a big lever to make workplaces in the mining industry more more attractive. Um, and I think the mindset uh, we we see, which is, is which is a cultural a cultural aspect, um, but I think we need to also think very differently about risk. Um, and that's why I like to take the oil industry as a reference. Um, Shared risk is is smaller risk. That's why you 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 do partnerships. Um, and when you're ten or fifteen different partners around the world in different projects, uh, you share that risk and you bring complementary skills and abilities. and And that's what I've seen in the oil industry work very well. Where you are deploying not 
five or six billion dollars, like your average copper project in the mining industry, you're deploying 30 or 40 or 50 billion dollars in countries that are not easier. Right? Um, sometimes um, the, the technological risk is bigger or sometimes the country risk is bigger or, or something else. But but usually it's just, there's an approach to partnerships with an operating partner and then sub partners that I think is a good a good uh, uh, example and um, showcase for how the mining industry can develop. Even on smaller projects, right? And I think we need to see a lot more of that. And that means um, also the individuals in mining companies have to think very differently about how to use partnerships to their advantage, how to bring in their suppliers, how to bring in technology partners, um, how to bring in other mining companies. Um, uh, still, still today, I've, I find some of my, my mining company peers to be quite confrontational. They right, look at their project, they look at their business, and um, um, they're, they're quite... Yeah, they're, 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 they they seem to believe that in order to be a successful mining CEO, you need to steamroll uh, your project, right? So deliver your project. And there's some element of that, right? You need to be pretty, um, you need to be pretty tough in this business. I like to call it a, <laughs> a contact sport, right? Mining is a contact sport, but that should not exclude your ability to partner more with, with your, your ecosystem around it. I think that's going to be the future. How does the... Um accelerated demand for critical raw material impact the ESG in mining? And also, what are um, ERG's main ESG commitments and policies? As I, as I mentioned, um, this, this accelerated demand from the energy transition, and by the way, let's not forget that all the other sectors are also growing, right? The demand for raw materials is actually never dropped maybe in 2008 once and then during COVID once but apart from that demand for raw material goes up every year right and on top of that you now have the the accelerated demand from the green energy transition so um, we will need to deliver more material and this accelerated demand it comes with increased uh, ESG risk and as I mentioned you push a supply chain too hard you get you get bad actors uh, that are up for a, out for a quick buck and they they do a lot of damage to the reputation of the industry as a whole so we really have to look at scaling up supply in a way that's compliant, that's a race to the top, and, and also encourage more investment in the sector. And, and that's a that's another problem for the industry is is, is for most the, the industry is actually not investable for many investors. Right? If you look at some of the large pension funds and and, and investors they have a that have a clear ESG agenda, they don't quite like this industry. And you see that in the valuations, right? The mining industry valuation, oh, what the current multiple is, four, what, five, six, seven. Some big companies have a multiple of three, which means investors really don't find this industry sexy. Um, they'd rather go into something that, an industry that wouldn't exist without the mining industry and make a 10, 15, 20 times multiple. So it's, there's a real reputation problem here. And so we have to find a way that uh, we bring in other types of funding into this industry to deploy more capital quicker and cheaper because the cost of funding in this industry is also very high because uh, it does reflect a lot of that risk. Um, but uh, but again, a lot of the other exciting sectors that you see today, whether this is in, in tech or in uh, devices or electric vehicles, they wouldn't exist without the mining industry. Right? But it's it's looked at as if the mining industry is the 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 the, the ugly little sister or ugly little brother uh, but without it, it doesn't. The industry wouldn't exist. So we really have to give both the investors and also consumers confidence that the product that they buy, whether it's an electric vehicle or a mobile phone or a, a, a solar cell, a solar panel, that whatever they buy is actually contributing to the sustainable development of the global economy. 
right? Rather than detracting from it. So I hate the word extractive industry, right? Because it looks like we're we're actually taking something away from someone. That's not the case, right? We're we're beneficiating a material that you can then use and create wealth and uh, contribute to the global economy. So ESG remains, I think, the top risk and the top opportunity for the metals and mining sector. Um, but we need to treat ESG as a source of value, right? As opposed to a, a problem or like a limiting factor or a restriction. Uh, ESG for us should be a source of value. Um, and I think this is where the best companies are, are are leading. And they're not leading just in project deployment or in selling and trading their material, but the leading companies are also leaders in ESG because that brings significant benefit from accessing capital to secure a license to operate, attracting talent, and also being a lighthouse for the industry as a whole. Um, because we want people to think about this industry as an industry that contributes to the greater good and is not an extractive industry. And for this, we need to give stakeholders much better access to data. Uh, We need to be much more open. Uh, We need to give uh, consumers the ability to choose between good or bad product uh, so they can actually assess the risks and opportunities. So we need need much more transparent outcome-based measurement and assurance of, of our KPI. Um, and that's around ESG as much as uh, just about production. So on some of our operation, um, we have actually got uh, 24-7 video access for customers so they can log in and they can actually see and look at the mine. Um, we need a lot more of that because people, many people, particularly end consumers, they don't understand what we actually do. A lot of investors have no idea what we do. Right? They see these pictures and they see these, these uh, reports from, from people that are often pretty mis- or ill-informed or have a different agenda. Uh, and they don't actually see what good looks like. So we have to educate a lot more. We have to be more transparent and, and show people the raw data. This is where, um, uh, which is where the Global Battery Lines and also a second project we're very involved in, which is called Resource, uh, actually gives customers access to raw data. Where was the material produced? Where was it shipped to? How has it been produced? Was it produced using uh, hydroelectric power? Was it used... Um, it was produced using uh, um, coal-fired power. Um, what's the CO2 footprint? What are the ESG um, uh, scores on, let's say, human rights or child labor prevention or creation of alternative livelihoods, environmental protection, biodiversity? Um, only by giving more transparency about how responsibly this material has been sourced will create something of a differentiated commodity. The problem with the commodity today is that there, it is a commodity. Right? That's great in terms of financial returns, because it's very transparent, but we need to also treat a commodity in a way that is a differentiated commodity, differentiated through ESG. So I think there's a great opportunity to use this transition now to create a more balanced and much more fairer distribution of value um, between, um, between the developed world and the developing countries. Because again, those riskier jurisdictions are risky because they're still developing. Right? because their legal framework might still be in, in development. They have a lot of poverty that they have to work with. So what, what is exciting, I think this green energy transition will actually enable many um, countries that are still underdeveloped to benefit. Now, the problem today is that a lot of the benefits, they still end up in the same um, developed countries. And to give an idea, I mean, the mobile phone example I like to use, it costs $1,000 in the store. Um, the actual phone materials cost 150 and the battery costs two dollars and the cobalt is like one or 150 dollars in that battery so so if you think about it you've created a value of a thousand dollars and the country that without which 
you couldn't make this mobile phone, only got $1, right? So I think there's much more opportunities for equitable distributions, which for me also is ESG, right? This is distribution of benefits. And that could be through more downstream beneficiation. It can be through more technology transfer to these countries. Um, and I think there's a real, real opportunity. Indonesia is, is, is a very good example um, how they have actually attracted tremendous amounts of investments in this battery supply chain um, by by pushing more equitable distribution of value created in the battery supply chain. So I think there's a, a lot more see a lot more to see. We believe that some of those vulnerable regions that are key to the green energy transition they should see increased value from the vast mineral reserves and. We as a company, we're also committed to that. We're actually now building a, um, a project right now in the DRC, uh, which will uh, increase the local value add of the cobalt uh, about 30 to 40% by uh, through a, a refining purification circuit. So those are, it's a small step, but it's a $250 million investment. So it's not, not, not small for the DRC, uh, but there's a lot mining companies can do in conjunction with their end customers, because let's not forget the largest end consumers of battery materials, those companies, let's say the top three, or let's say the largest consumer of, of, of battery materials is worth more than the next 10 mining companies taken together. Right? This company could not exist without the mining companies. Right? It could not exist without places like Chile and Argentina and the DRC and Indonesia. Right? And I think we need to need to long-term think about how do we, how do we find a more equitable um, fair distribution of this incredible wealth that is going to be created through the green energy transition. Um, you're the co-chair of the uh, Global Battery Alliance. Um, what is the battery passport and why is it important for the mining industry? Yeah, that's that's a topic I'm very passionate about. This, so I can talk for, for 10 more podcasts about this, Rob. <laughs> but I'll keep it very short. So the GBA was founded in 2016 by a group of like-minded um, civil society, uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, the World Bank was one of the first founders, um, and, and a few mining companies like ourselves. Um, and our plan was to develop a sustainable supply chain of energy transition materials, and particularly the energy storage system, because that's where we saw the biggest challenge to arise because of the sheer increase in volumes. Um, now now the, the Global Battery Alliance has about 100 and 40 odd members, um, companies like like Tesla, BMW, Volkswagen on the end customer side, Microsoft, um, all the main mining companies on the other side. Um, my co-chair is the uh, is the uh, the founder of CATL, which is the largest uh, maker of batteries in the world, um, and um, uh, companies in the midstream like BSF, like Umicore, the smelters, the refiners, LG, and so on. So it's a it's it's on the company side. It's very well represented. On the other hand, we have some of the leading civil society members uh, because, again, coming back to what I said at the outset, is uh, this is about partnership, multi-ship, multi-stakeholder partnerships. We cannot develop a just transition without partnerships with everyone that's participating in this. So this is not an industry initiative. Um, and then, of course, we have government representation from the European Union, from uh, supported by the United States. We have a uh, uh, significant Chinese representation uh, because these are the size of projects and challenges you can only address with a large multi-stakeholder initiative. And um, one one of the the flagship initiatives for the GBA is is the the, the battery passport. Right, it's we announced uh, earlier this year in Davos. Uh, we published the first um, proof of concept of um, what essentially was the world's first battery passport, which is a digital representation of a battery. Right. 
sounds sounds uh, um, sounds theoretical, but actually, this is the first time that end users will have the opportunity to uh, to look at and assess important data about ESG performance of the material uh, and the companies involved in producing them, the material provenance, the chemical makeup, the usage, the manufacturing history. So essentially, you could go. You you got on your podcast. You've got a little. Um, a barcode here, a scanner. So we have the same, right? You can scan it and it goes and it looks up and it says, oh, this cobalt was produced this this month at this mine, right? Oh, and it was transferred to this refinery and it was transited from this refinery to this cell manufacturer. On that cell manufacturer, it went on to this battery maker. From this battery maker, it ended up in this car. Um, and it will actually give consumers a choice to see where, where does the stuff all come from? Oh, and by the way, interesting, the CO2 footprint of that unit of nickel from Indonesia is XYZ compared to that unit of nickel from the Philippines or from uh, from Canada. And suddenly you get people people that buy these these products like electric vehicles who, who predominantly do this because they have an environmental conscience and an ESG conscience. It gives them a very powerful tool, which is choice, right? They can actually look at a, a car, look at the battery and say, this battery is cleaner, this battery is better than the other. I'm going to buy this battery. The moment you have consumers this this power, you're going to see an entire entire supply chain change. And um, we um, the, a passport will become um, regulatory required um, in the European Union very soon. We believe that the United States will follow very soon as well. So people will have battery passports on their cars. I think there's no way back. Um, the battery pass with the GBA was already endorsed at the G7 leaders meeting in 2021 um, in the draft EU directive on batteries and also by the Canadian and US administration. So um, uh, we believe that the, the GBA passport will be uh, the passport of choice and it will bring new levels of transparency to the global battery supply chain um, and with trusted data because this is data is actually the raw data, right? It's not that the GBA comes up with the data or the members come up with the data. It's independently assessed and it's publicly available. Um, and you can uh, your your viewers can actually go on the website, uh, look at the prototypes. Uh, there's an example from Audi. There's one from Tesla, um, and the value chain partners of uh, of these companies. Um, and there's a greenhouse gas rulebook which tracks the greenhouse gases, gives a framework for how to calculate greenhouse gas emissions in the battery supply chain, uh, human rights, child labor indices that have been developed with civil society, um, and um, and governments. Um, so I think this is. Uh, this, these will be key performance indicators for uh, for battery passport inputs and outputs. So I'm very excited about this. And I think the fact that this has been such a broad, multi-stakeholder, multi-member initiative uh, tells you that big problems like this, because again, the lack of traceability is not a problem you can solve with money. Right? You need a partnership to address a challenge like a sustainable build-out of the largest supply chain since the transition from from uh, the industrial revolution to the to the internal combustion engine, we're seeing the same today. So it's the biggest transition uh, for the last one hundred years, and we're at the center of it as a mining industry. I think that's very exciting. What's your involvement with the World Economic Forum, and what kind of work are you doing with them? The uh, World Economic Forum. We we joined um, one of the first uh, one of my first initiatives um, was for ERG to join. Um, as a strategic partner for the World Economic Forum, um, we um, I worked with them before in one of my my previous capacities when I was a consultant at BCG, um, and um, I've always found that it's a fantastic platform for multilateral and multi-stakeholder cooperation. 
again, how to solve problems that you can't solve with money, real problems, you have to have partners and a multi-stakeholder initiative. And I'm now very much involved in three initiatives um, uh, for the WEF. One is the uh, the Partnership Against Corruption Initiative, which one of the first ones we, we joined. Um, we are very active in, um, as I mentioned, the global battery lines. And there's also a new initiative, which was uh, a kickstarted last year, uh, which is um, which is the an initiative by the governors group, on which I'm also a member governors group of the metals and mining industry, of um, materials, critical materials for the uh, the energy transition. So, how as as an industry can we uh, reduce the barriers to increasing production to the extent that is required for the energy transition? And we did a very very ex- extensive risk mapping and engaged with governments and and regulators. Um, because we want to race to the top. We don't want to race to the bottom as part of this transition. Um, so we have to identify what is actually holding back the rollout, the deployment of capital, uh, the development of projects, um, the a, a, a license to operate for countries in more complicated jurisdictions. And we mapped all this out uh, with, um, with our members, um, also from civil society and the public sector. Um, and I'm one of, the, one of the leaders of that initiative. So uh, we should be part of the conversation. Right, the mining industry needs to be part of the conversation. We're not an object, right? We are a subject to this conversation. We have to be at the at the front of this. And I think the World Economic Forum and other other multilateral cooperation initiatives, um, I think, are the right platform for this. We should be thinking beyond just our own industry because we need more partners than just our peers in the industry. I've got two more questions. Um, what's the outlook for ERG over the sort of next five to ten years? Yeah, um, we we have, um, as you know, we have multiple geographies. Um, we have our Central Asian uh, business. We have our African business, um, our South American business. Um, we 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 do well. I can talk a lot about our our different individual um, strategies. Clearly, I've got a very strong push towards more technology and more diversity um, for our for our company, um, and um, we have uh, quite significant plans to apply technology, particularly to exploration. Right? I'm a big fan of exploration. A lot of people are not because right, it doesn't pay off during your CEO lifetime. Right. I'm a big fan of exploration. I think we have to discover and develop an incredible amount of new materials, and it has to come from new, new regions, new geographies. So we are very actively taking up new exploration around, around the world, in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, in South America, um, because I think in the long term, this industry has to develop more projects, and it has to start from um, from the exploration. Let's not forget the large, the, the last large significant large escondida type copper project was probably found 20 years ago which means if we haven't found it today we're not going to have copper in the 20 in 20 years from now from a project that hasn't been discovered so we really have to get going um so that's one of the areas i'm really really passionate about and there's because there are new ways for technology to add value to exploration i think this is uh, this is one of the most exciting areas that we would like to focus on um, because often you find a deposit because you look at the same data in a different way right you look at a drill core a different way. You look at the system a different way. Um, and I think that's where AI and sensors and, and big data analysis can, can really help us. And also in the deployment of these exploration activities, as you have very different ways of now scanning cores, analyzing data in the field, uh, on site. In, in Saudi Arabia, we were, for example, piloting a fully remote operated uh, sampling vehicle, right? Like a little, it's like a rover, like a little Mars rover. 
So we will have Mars rovers running around in the desert in Saudi Arabia to pick samples. Right? Ten years ago, people would have laughed at everyone who would have had that idea. So technology is incredibly important. And I think we need to, we will have more regional diversity. I want to build out more um, uh, more areas um, in, um, in, exciting, uh, in exciting geological uh, belts. Um, we made a big foray into, into Saudi Arabia last year. Uh, we will probably announce a couple more um, b- bigger activities in other geographies this year. Um, and very specifically in the DRC, we're building out our, our copper cobalt portfolio. We've got a um, projects in the pipeline that are ready for implementation, projects in the pipeline uh, to double, roughly double production, which will make us the largest cobalt producer in the world, um, and uh, roughly six, seven hundred thousand uh, copper, a thousand ton uh, copper equivalent um, production by uh, within the next four years. Now, I don't know what the prices of materials are going to be in five years or ten years from now, um, but we're very fortunate that our portfolio is is, is very robust and very competitive. So um, we will develop those anyways. The challenge is more for a lot of the junior mining companies, which is a big mystery for me. Uh, a lot of junior mining companies, they their valuations are very very small, right? Because it's a it's a niche market and not many people understand it. There's a lot of cowboys in this market. It's a it's a lemon <laughs> a lemon market, if you want to call it. But this is where the future lies, right? The junior mining sector is incredibly important for larger companies like ours to access deposits and accelerate their development. That's where we're very, we opened a, an office in Canada uh, last year, uh, specifically to look at the exploration and junior mining sector, uh, because we think, again, partnerships on the upstream, on exploration, on development are going to be key for us to, de- uh, to develop the projects that are required to satisfy the raw material, critical raw materials, hunger of the energy transition, which we want to be a centerpiece of. And lastly, um, the majority of our audience are from the mining industry. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to add or inspire our audience? Um, Obviously, like I said, a lot of the people from the listeners to the podcast are from the mining industry. And I just wondered if you had any, uh, any closing words (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can teach the industry a lot, so I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm not going to say much, but um, I think we all have an, a responsibility to be more transparent to people outside of our industry. Um, and we have to be more welcoming to people from outside of this industry. Very rarely do, do mining companies hire people that don't come from the mining industry. It's perfectly normal if you work for a, I don't know, a consumer goods company and you you uh, you would hire an engineer from the chemicals industry, right? If you're in the chemical industry, it's perfectly normal to hire somebody that has a background in I don't know IT from a technology company. We don't do much of that, right? We tend to hire the same people in the mining industry, and it, it's like a it's like a circle. I mean, Rob, you you know, right? You're in this you're in this space, and I think there's so much more if we are this industry is is more open, more open for conversation, also for challenge, right? Because people that come in from a different industry and uh, particularly in manufacturing and IT and artificial intelligence, they have a lot to say to us as an industry because our industry is incredibly inefficient because the margins historically have been always high enough to allow for mistakes, right? Because you only enter into a project, you only commit CapEx in a project if it has a 20, 25, 30% IR, which means you assume that something is going to go wrong, right? Which gives you a lot of leeway to get to get something wrong. Um, and I think we need to be a lot more open, listen more to what happens outside in other sectors and other um, technologies. Um, and also think about the next generation. Um, we, we, we need, as an industry, I think, to be going out into universities more, out into schools more, 
uh, we're going to need hundreds of thousands of people working in this industry as engineers, as production managers, as salespeople, as finance people. At the moment, they don't want to come to us, right? They'd rather go and work on the U.S. West Coast in a startup. That's great. I like startups on the U.S. West Coast, but I want some of the greatest minds to work for us and our industry. And I think that's going to be important that we think long term, think about the next generation that is going to come up and how are we going to get them excited about what we do? Because it is exciting. This generation, this next generation, somebody called it the, the snowflake generation, right? So they, right, they, they get offended quickly and the next generation, they, they don't stick to one thing. They like to fly around and go to the next thing. As is, because at the core of this generation that we have to bring up to replace us is impact, right? People in this generation, the young people, my, my children, they want to have impact. It's all about impact. And I tell to them is, is don't think about the next app, right? If you really want to have impact, go and build a mine, right? Develop a technology that saves emissions in the mining process. This is where you're going to have impact. And you're going to be at the core of the energy transition. Not just talk about it from the outside, be inside of it. And I think that's an interesting proposition we have to make to this next generation is be a part of this area where you can really have impact. Benedict, really appreciate your time in, uh, in sharing your thoughts and wisdom. Um, tell us a little bit about, obviously, ERG and what your plans are. So um, really appreciate your time um, and hope to maybe uh, get you on the podcast to talk more about the, uh, the whole Green Revolution and obviously the Battery Alliance uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. With pleasure. Rob, yeah. great talking to you. And yourself. <laughs> thank, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please share this amongst people within the mining industry and also obviously people outside of the mining industry to obviously spread spread the word and, and educate people outside of the mining industry because it is a great industry. It is needed for the future development of, of our world and our mankind. So uh, as always, appreciate your help. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.